0: Well, if I were to ask you, when does Christmas begin, I think a lot of us would have different answers to that question. Some of you would say, well, I, I listen to Christmas music, like starting when school starts. I mean, that's when my wife starts listening to it. Anyway, she starts playing Christmas music on the you know, car in the car and at our house. It's like when fall hits, it's like, she thinks it's Christmas season. Some of you maybe, uh, are, are the same way guys for a lot of us. Christmas starts when we put the lights on the, on the house, right? I mean, your, your wife uh, is probably the one and a lot of families anyways, buying the presents and doing those things. And, and for you, it kind of gets real when you're risking your life up on the roof of your house, uh, putting the lights on your house. You're like, okay, Christmas is here. All right. This is dangerous. Uh, I should probably have a professional do this, but I'm going to do it myself and risk my life up here for these, these little twinkling lights. For some of us, Christmas begins on Black Friday when grandmas get up at 5 a.m. and put each other in headlocks and chokeholds and punch each other and get in fights over that, that toy or that uh, device that's on sale. Others of us, uh, Christmas starts on Cyber Monday with the hundreds of emails that we get from every store we've ever been to in our entire lives. Somehow Facebook and Google, I guess, have tracked and told us, you know, told the stores when we visited, even when we didn't sign up. And so now we get emails in hundreds of them from every store. So maybe for you, Christmas starts on Cyber Monday when you start ordering presents and things like that. Uh, for kids... They think maybe Christmas starts, you know, when Santa was first hired, whenever his boss hired him. And, and that's, that's, you know, when Santa first came on the, on the scene. And and so that's when, that's when Christmas started. Or if you're a Christian, you might say, well, no, uh, the Christmas starts in the gospels. Like when, when Jesus shows up and the wise men show up and they bring their frankincense and myrrh and, and they sell their essential oils to Mary so that she can get involved in their pyramid scheme and never have to work again. So for some of you, you, that's, you think, well, that's when Christmas started was, 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 at that moment. Right. But where does Christmas begin? Where is the very first promise of Christmas? And what I would submit to you, what I want to show you today is that the very first promise of Christmas goes all the way back to the very beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of time as we know it. Like the very first promise of Christmas is actually in the book of Genesis, Like in the very beginning, in a crisis larger than you and I could ever possibly imagine and more impactful for you and I in this universe than you could ever possibly imagine is this crisis when the very first promise of Christmas is issued in the very beginning. So if you got your Bible, that's where you can turn Genesis chapter three. And uh, if you have your Bible or not, you can jump on our app. Uh, the City Church Lubbock, you can download it, that in your app store, follow along with us the verses and the points and everything will be in there and you can uh, fill in the blank as you go and kind of stay engaged and in track with what, with, with what we're talking about today. But, but here's where we are in Genesis. In Genesis 1, God has spoken everything into existence by the power of his word. There was nothing and then there was everything. We call it, theologians call it, scholars call it the uncaused cause, that is who God is in Genesis 1. He is the uncaused cause to the universe and to life. He's the one that caused everything. There was nothing and then there was everything. There was light and there was the universe and there was man and one. God created all those things by the power of his word in Genesis 1. And then in Genesis 2, God says, hey, this is how this relationship between God and humanity is going to work because God is love. And that's one of the reasons he gave uh, life to man and woman. That's one of the reasons he created life as we know it was to be in this love relationship with humanity, with his creation. He says, hey, this is how the relationship's going to work. I've given you all these trees that you can eat from. But this one tree, the knowledge of good and evil, you're not going to eat from that tree. And here's how the relationship's going to work. You're going to obey me and trust me and eat from all these other trees and we will be good. We will be in right standing. But if you eat from this one tree, this this one tree, if you eat from it, it's not gonna go well for you. In fact, you will die. You will surely die, God says. You see, later in the scripture, when Jesus shows up, Jesus says that we show our love for God by obeying his commands. And so even in the very beginning, God establishes a love relationship with man and woman, but the way that we show our love for God, the way that we demonstrate our love for God is through our obedience to him. And so God says to have a true love relationship, there's got to be this choice to obey and to pursue me and to trust in me and to follow me or to rebel, to disobey, to turn away from me. And so in the very beginning, God creates everything and it's good. And man and woman, humanity are in a perfect, right relationship with God. It's paradise. But then we come to Genesis chapter 3 and we've got a major crisis on our hands. And so we're going to read here now a chunk from Revelation chapter 3. And then we'll break it down and talk about what it means and what this crisis means for us uh, even to this day. So let's go. Genesis chapter three, starting in verse one, it says this. Now the serpent, the snake, was more crafty than any of the other other wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be, be just like him. You'll be as powerful and as knowledgeable and as wise as God if you eat from this tree. And God doesn't want that. So when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and was pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, it was the woman, the woman you put me here with. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity or a war. There will be a war between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Some translations say your seed. And the seed of the woman. There will be this war between the, the seed of the devil, the serpent, and the seed of the woman. And he, the seed of the woman, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Talking about how because of sin, there would be this war between man and woman, husband and wife for control all the days of our life. And we would seek to control one another rather than serve and love one another. And to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. And so, because you were made from dust, from dust you are, and to dust you will return. You will die. So everything was good. Everything was perfect. Paradise. God had created this perfect place for Adam and Eve to live in and to have everything provided for them. God had created this amazing relationship between the husband and the wife, the man and the woman. It was perfect at this point with no war, with no conflict. And God had created Adam and Eve humanity in a perfect relationship with himself. So everything is perfect. But then man and woman rebel against God and everything is broken as a result. And so this rebellion is very costly for Adam and Eve and for you and I as a result. And I want to show you why. I want to show you what what is this rebellion? How did it happen? And what does it mean for you and I today? So number one, first of all, rebellion questions God's word. That's where rebellion begins. When you begin to question the word of God. If you look in verses one through four, the devil through the serpent, the snake says, Did God really say you must not eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden? Did God really say that? Surely God didn't say that. Like that's pretty severe, isn't it? Like, right? Surely God didn't say that. Man, that's not what God meant. He couldn't have meant that. That's, that's, that's mean, that's restrictive. He couldn't have meant that. And the woman says, of course we may eat from the fruit from the trees in the garden. The woman replied, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it or you will die. And then again, the serpent says, questioning the word of God, you won't die. No, no God said we would die. No, 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 that's, 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 that's crazy. You're not gonna die. You're not gonna die from eating the fruit from that tree. You see, rebellion questions the word of God. It questions what is true and right. Rebellion says, I know what's best. And whatever I want and whatever I desire, that's what the word is used here in Genesis 3 whatever looks good to me, whatever I desire, it must be true and right if I desire it. And that's actually the meaning of this word here in Genesis three in Hebrew. When Eve says, she looks at it, she sees it and it was desirable. What's meant there is because I want it, because it looks desirable, because it feels desirable, it must be good for me and it must be right if I want it. And that is rebellion. That is where rebellion begins. It's going with what you want Over God's Word. Genesis 3 says that Eve looked at it, saw that it was good. Because she thought it was good, that meant it must be good and right. You see, God's Word must always be our source of what is true and right, not our wants, our opinions, our ideas, or our desires. We go with God's word over what we want. Rebellion begins with questioning God's word. Next, rebellion questions God's heart. If you look in verse five, the serpent begins to say, "God." the snake begins to say, God knows if you eat this fruit, God knows that your eyes are gonna be opened as soon as you eat it and you're gonna be just like him. You'll be as powerful as God. You'll be as wise as God. You will be just like him and God doesn't want that. And so God begins to, or the snake rather, begins to question the motivation of God, the heart of God. And Adam and Eve begin to listen and begin to question the motives in the heart of God. The snake's basically saying, God just wants to control you and manipulate you. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't love you. He doesn't want what's best for you. He's not a, he's not a good father. He just wants to control you and manipulate you. You see, rebellion questions Heart of God, and here's what's wild is that God made man and woman in Genesis 1 to be like Him in His image. And so, what's wild here is that the snake actually begins to question their very identity that God gave them and created them with to be like Him. Now, we are not God, we are not the creator, we are the created, but God. In Genesis 1, creates man and woman to be like him in his image. And the devil comes along and begins to say, no, 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 God doesn't want you to be like him. Questioning the heart and motive of God. That's where rebellion starts. Next, rebellion questions God's provision. Rebellion questions God's provision. God provided countless numbers of trees for them to eat from and said there was only one tree that they could not eat from. You see, rebellion always says what's been provided is never enough. Robbie Zacharias, a famous theologian in our day, is known for saying that God could give 1000 ways to heaven and humanity would complain that there wasn't 1001 because it's never enough rebellion says it's never it's never enough god could have given adam and eve 1000 trees to eat from but they wanted the fruit from the 1001st Because what's been provided is is never enough. God gave them trees to eat from, a paradise to live in, a a man and woman to be in this partnership, to not be alone with. He gave them this, this perfect relationship with each other. God shows his desire to provide good things for his kids by providing all these things for them. But it's never enough, it's not enough. God's provision shows us what's true and right. And that is that we need him and we are dependent on him as the creation. He's the creator, we are the creation. And so what he's provided for us shows that relationship. It shows the nature of this dynamic that we do need God and we are dependent upon him. But in our rebellion, it's, it's never enough. Next, rebellion is following the devil. When we rebel against God and we go with what we want and with what we desire over what God's word says, we're actually following the devil. If you look in verse six, it says that the woman was convinced by what? What was she convinced by? Who convinced her? Who convinced the woman that this tree, that this fruit from this tree was good and desirable? Who convinced her of that? It was the serpent. The devil was using the serpent to tempt Adam and Eve. And they were convinced, who were they convinced by? They were convinced by the devil, that's who. They weren't just going with what they want, with what they desire, they were actually following the advice of the devil. And what's wild is that in these verses, the woman Eve actually begins to use the Hebrew word for God that the snake uses, not the Hebrew word for God that God says his name is Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the Lord God, like God Almighty she actually begins to refer to God with the name that the devil uses for God, which is just some supreme being that doesn't really care about you. She actually begins to call him by a different name as a result of the influence of the devil. Paul writes this in Ephesians two, starting in verse one. Once you were dead in your sin because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He, the devil, is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, Paul says, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. When we follow our desires and our inclinations, our thoughts, our ideas, our opinions, when we follow what we think, we're actually, the Bible says, we're following the devil. That's who we're following. That's who we've been convinced by is the devil. Paul says, just like the rest of the world, all of us, when we were in sin and when we choose to sin, are following the devil. And it's the devil who's at work in our hearts when we rebel against God, Paul says. So rebellion is following the devil. Next, rebellion doesn't accept blame. Did you notice when God shows up in the garden and in verse 12 and 13, he says, "You know, why have you done this to the man? And the man blames the woman and then talks to the woman. The woman blames the, uh, the, the snake. And then you, know, you would think it would follow. You talk to the snake, although God doesn't ask the snake why he's done it. But if he asked the snake, well, the devil made me do it, right? It was the devil. It was the devil's fault. The devil made me do it. And so everybody's got someone to blame. You see, rebellion says it's never my fault. It's always someone else's fault. There's some Navy SEALs that got together and wrote a book called Extreme Ownership. It's one of the hardest books I've ever, uh, I've ever read in my life. And uh, the, the tagline on the book is how Navy SEALs win and, and uh, accomplish their mission. And in the book, Here's one of the main ideas, the big idea in the book, Extreme Ownership, written by these Navy SEALs, is that they would say, everything in your world is your fault. Now there's obvious exceptions to that, abuse, things that we suffer at the hands of someone else. But what they would write is that everything in your world is, is your fault, positive or, or Negative. And here's what they would also say, is that if you cannot accept the blame for something, if you can't own something, then you can't be trusted. We can't trust you to go to battle with us if you can't ever own anything or accept the blame. If it's always someone else's fault, then we cannot trust you. And so the life of the Navy SEAL is extreme ownership. Everything in my world is my fault. Rebellion does not accept blame. It always says it's someone else's fault. Next, this rebellion is inherited. This rebellion, the the rebellion of Adam and Eve is actually inherited. Like the next generation receives this desire to rebel from God. The very next chapter, one generation later, we get Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's kids. And if you know the story, you know from the very beginning when they're young, Cain is jealous and envious of Abel and ends up killing him. David would write in the Psalms, King David would write in the Psalms. I was sinful from birth. From the time my mother conceived me, I was sinful. And if you're a parent, like you understand this, like you get this is true because we have to teach our kids to do right, not wrong, right? I mean, when they come out of the womb, it's like they're immediately, their natural desires and their natural inclination is to do wrong. I mean, we're at Christmas time right now and you could be having a powerful moment talking about how Jesus is the reason for the season and you're reading the Bible stories and the Christmas story and all those kinds of things and you think you're having this great moment and this is sweet, cute, great moment with your family, with your kids, they're really getting it, man. They are really getting that Jesus is the reason for the season and then not one second later, that's my toy, get your hands off my toy, that's my toy, give it back to me. You can't play with my toy. You see, we have to teach our kids to do right. The scripture says we are sinful from the time we are conceived because we inherit this sinful nature at birth. Jesus said this, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save the world because you're condemned already. You're condemned already. So I'm not coming to condemn you. I'm coming to save you you've got a big problem. You've rebelled against me from the time you were born. And so I haven't come to condemn you, I've come to save you because you stand condemned already. Jesus would say, so you must be born again. You were born into sin physically. And so to be saved from your sin, from this rebellion, you must be born again spiritually. Jesus would say. Paul writes in Romans 5 that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all have sin. Verse 16 and 18 goes like this, that judgment followed one man's sin and brought condemnation to all. Verse 19, so through disobedience of one man, all were made sinners. So through the disobedience of Adam and Eve, we inherit sin. We've all inherited this sin nature, this, this, d- this desire, this natural inclination to rebel against God. We've inherited it. We've received it from the time that we were born. Next, this rebellion is pervasive, which mean it is total. It is complete. Theologians call it total depravity that our minds are darkened and cursed because of sin. So we do not come up with good ideas or godly ideas or thoughts or opinions. We want and desire things that are totally wrong. So our our hearts are, are darkened and cursed because of sin. The Bible says there are none that seek God. No one loves God on their own left to themselves. So our our hearts are sinful. Jeremiah writes that our, our hearts are deceitful above all else. We can't trust our hearts. We can't trust our feelings. We can't trust our emotions because our hearts are evil and wicked, Jeremiah would say. They're deceitful above all else. They have been affected and cursed by sin. Our bodies, our flesh crave sinful things. Our soul, the Bible says, is dead because of sin. And so this would lead Paul to write in Romans 7, there is nothing good in me. There's nothing good in me, Paul would say. And he was the most religious people probably on the face of the planet ever. This guy was so religious. And Paul would say, there is nothing good in me. Apart from the Spirit's work in me, apart from Christ in me, there is nothing good in me or about me. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology would explain it like this. That every part of our being is affected by sin. Our intellect, our emotions, our desires, our hearts, our goals, our motives, and even our physical bodies all are subject to the decay and destruction caused by sin. Our actions, our attitudes, and our very natures all make us guilty of sin. We are totally depraved. Rebellion, the rebellion of Adam and Eve. Is totally pervasive. It affects every part of who we are. And then finally, this rebellion is crushed. This rebellion. Is crushed. The snake would lead Adam and Eve to think that there is no punishment for their sin, that nothing wrong can come from doing whatever you want to do, what you love, or taking what you see, or doing whatever you desire. The snake would have them to believe that only freedom and happiness and joy and independence comes from doing what you want to do. But this rebellion would be nothing but a lie. It's a lie. God had said there would be a curse for sin. And in verses 14 through 19, God begins to lay out the curses of sin and tells the snake that the snake is going to crawl along the the ground and eat dust for the rest of its life. God tells the woman that there's going to be pain in childbirth and that she would have this desire for her husband and the husband would try to control her and there would be this war between man and woman, between husband and wife for control God tells the man, you're gonna to have to work hard now. I had provided everything for you, but now you're gonna to have to work hard and the ground's gonna to be tough because the ground's gonna be cursed as well. And so you're gonna to struggle to scratch a living from it. You're gonna to struggle to provide food for your family because now the ground is cursed. And so we have famine and earthquakes and tornadoes and tsunamis and all these things that we see on our planet. Paul would say our, the world, literally the world is like in childbirth pains, until Christ returns. It's aching, it's broken. You see, rebellion is a lie. All the independence and the freedom and the happiness that it promises is nothing but a lie and serves to do nothing but bring us death and destruction and pain and regret. Because the rebellion is crushed, the snake, God says, will be crushed. And today, we actually celebrate people's rebellion. And God says, your rebellion is going to do nothing but kill you. It's nothing to celebrate. Uh, there's nothing to celebrate here. The rebellion has brought a curse, a curse on everything. And God says that it's the snake that is going to be crushed by the seed of this woman, by the seed of Eve. And so right here in Genesis 3, we get the very first promise of Christmas. It's right here in verse 15. I hope you saw it. It says this, God says, and I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman speaking to the snake, to the serpent. There's going to be this war between you and the woman, and there's going to be this war, there's going to be this enmity between your offspring and hers, her offspring, her seed, some translations say, her seed, he will crush your head. So the snake is going to be crushed along with the snake's rebellion is going to be crushed. And so here's what you need to see. This is a big idea today, right? It's right here. This is the promise of Christmas is that the seed will crush the snake. This seed is going to crush the snake. And this is the very first promise of Christmas all the way in the beginning, right in the middle of this crisis between humanity and God. God promises there's a seed that's going to come and crush the head of the snake and crush this rebellion that separated man and God. So the question is, who is this seed? Who is this seed that is going to crush the head of the snake? Well, generations later, when Abraham shows up on the scene in Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham through your seed, And Abraham himself is obviously a seed of Adam and Eve. Through your seed, all the nations on earth, all the families on earth, all the people groups of the earth are going to be blessed through your seed. One of the next times we see this idea, this thought show up is when God promises David, King David, and says, hey, you will never cease to have someone from your seed, from your offspring reigning on the throne. You will always have one of your seed, one of your offspring reigning on the throne. Well, then we get to Matthew chapter one, the very first book of the New Testament. And watch this. Matthew one, verse one says this. Jesus, the son of David. Matthew one, verse one. Jesus, the son of David. You mean Jesus is the seed that God promises in in Genesis chapter three? Yes. In Genesis three, in the middle of this crisis, God says, your seed Eve will crush the head of the snake. Abraham, your seed is going to bless all the people groups on the face of the earth. David, your seed, you will never cease to have someone reigning on the throne. Your seed will be king forever. Matthew one, verse one. Jesus, the son of David. You know, it was prophesied in Isaiah chapter nine, verse seven, this covenant that God made with David. And Isaiah said it would become true that through this, this Messiah 700 years before the time of Christ, Isaiah said that in the Messiah, we would have this Prince of peace, this wonderful Counsel, to this mighty God, and to the, to his government and to his reign, to his kingdom, there would be no end. And the angel shows up to the shepherds, Luke chapter two, angel shows up and says, I've got good news. Great joy that will be for all people today in the city of David. Like in the line of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. In other words, this baby that's going to be born to you is the promised Messiah. He's the Christ, the the Messiah. And he's Lord, which means he's God. Like this is God in the flesh, the seed that was promised to to Eve, and to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and and to David. This is the seed that was to come and to reign on the throne forever because he's God himself. And so here's what you need to realize this morning is that the snake's rebellion is temporary, but the seed's reign is forever. The snake's rebellion is only temporary but the seeds reign will be forever. You see, when God said that seed would crush the head of the snake, that happened in Hebrews two, it says when Jesus died on the cross and then rose again. You see, when Jesus rose from the grave, the Bible says he conquered sin and he conquered death. And Hebrews two says this, and he conquered him who holds the power of death, who is the devil. So Jesus has conquered the snake and the scripture teaches us that one day Jesus is going to return. And when he returns, he's going to throw the snake who in revelation is the beast, the dragon. And he's gonna throw him into this prison for a thousand years where he will have no more influence on this earth or in the people of this earth. And then at the end of this thousand years, Jesus will let the snake, the the beast, the devil out of the pit and we'll throw him into a lake of fire where he will be tormented forever. Forever. And then Jesus will reign on this earth in a new heavens and a new earth for all eternity. You see, the, the s- snake's rebellion is temporary, but the seed is going to reign forever. And so you and I find ourselves at a crisis today too. Every one of us do. We're in a crisis. Do we follow, do we trust the snake and rebel against God? Going after what we want, what's desirable, what feels good or seems good to us? Or do we submit to the seed? Do we trust the seed? Do we follow the seed? Jesus. You see, every one of us are at that crisis today. Some of us, maybe for the very first time. Others of us, we've given our lives to Jesus. We're followers of Jesus, but there's areas of our life that we're rebelling against God have not been submitted to the seed, Jesus. We've submitted to the snake in our rebellion. And so what's it going to be? Are you going to bow up to God? Are you going to bow down to God? Are you going to bow up and rebel against him and question his word and question his heart and question his provision? Or do you bow down and say, no, God, you know best. I give my life to you. I submit my life to you. I submit my life to the seed. You see, there's good news of great joy at Christmas. But the message of Christmas, the story of Christmas is also very humbling. Tim Keller wrote about it in a book about Christmas and he said this, there's never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus Christ requires us to do. Christmas means that we are so lost, so unable to save ourselves, that nothing less than the death of the Son of God Himself could save us. That means you are not somebody who can pull yourself together and live a moral and good life. You need a savior. And your savior is the seed. And so you need to submit yourself to the seed. Submit yourself to the savior. You see, any seed, For it to sprout, life has to be planted. You plant a seed and where there is no life, you plant the seed and then life comes forth. Life springs out from where there was no life, but the seed has to be planted. And if you need to turn from rebellion in your heart and in your life today, You cannot do that on your own. Like Tim Keller said, you you can't pull yourself together and live a good moral life. Like you can't do this on your own. The message of Christmas is not do better and try harder. No, the message of Christmas is you got to submit yourself to the Savior. Submit yourself to the seed and plant the seed in your heart. And when you plant the seed in your heart, then the rebellion that's in your heart is crushed. And the snake's influence in your heart and in your life is crushed. Crushed. And the curse of sin, death that's in your life and over your life is crushed when the seed is planted in your heart. And so the question for you this morning is, has the seed, has the Jesus been planted in your heart? Have you given your life to Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus's payment of your fine through his death on the cross? You see, Jesus, when he died on that cross, and he placed that crown of thorns, the symbol of the curse on the ground, on his head. The Bible says that he became a curse for you and me so that we may be right with God. And so when you give your life to the savior, to the seed, your sin is completely forgiven. You're fine for your sin, for your rebellion, it's paid in full. And you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. Not when you've been a better person, not when you've tried harder, not when you've been here a hundred times. Your sin's forgiven and you're made right with God when the seed's been planted in your heart, when you've given your life to Jesus. So that's my challenge for you this morning. If you've never done that, today's your day, now is your time. And if you're here and you have made that decision, then what area of your life is in rebellion against God and his word? You're not gonna be able to crush that without the seed in your heart. And so submit yourself to the seed this morning because the the seed will reign forever. So the crisis you find yourself in and I find myself in this morning is in every area, in every part of our life, am I going to submit myself to the seed, to the Savior? Or am I gonna submit to the snake? Let's pray and ask God to help us submit to the Savior, to the seed this morning. Would you pray with me? God, we're reminded today that the angel told us we wouldn't have to be afraid. The angel said to the shepherds and to Adam and and Eve and and, and to Joseph and Mary, that the angel is saying to all of us, that the word of the Lord to all of us is, don't be afraid, I've got good news of great joy. For today in the city of David, in the line of David, a savior has been born to you for all people. He is Christ, the Lord. And so Jesus, I pray today that every one of us would cry out to you for salvation from the rebellion that's in our hearts. Today, Father, we submit ourselves to the seed because the seed will reign forever. what wild, crazy, great news is it that the scripture says that those who are in Christ will reign with him forever. We thank you for that great news. Would you teach our hearts and move our hearts this morning to submit ourselves, to bow down to the seed and not bow up. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, would you stand? Our team's gonna lead us in worship. And and as we do, you're gonna see some people up here with trays and we're gonna take the Lord's Supper together as we enter into this Christmas season as a reminder of the reason that Christ, the Lord, the Savior was born, was to rescue us from our rebellion. And so if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come and to partake in this meal where we remember that it was his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us to pay the fine for my rebellion, to pay the fine for your rebellion against God. And so as we sing, you're invited to come and to participate as you feel led. Let's worship.